0: Scripture is from the book of Mark, chapters 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you, Katie. The Gospel of Mark. um, Through self-examination, I've realized that I've become subject to preacher's disease which is to preach the parts of the Bible that I am currently interested in or reading books about or through a quirk I happen to be following some kind of rabbit trail. Um, But not really preaching the basics. I've been preaching about faith and prayer and spiritual warfare and I've been assuming a basic knowledge about Jesus, his life, his ministry, everything he did. Um, And that's not necessarily true. There's been a huge turnover at our church, as you know. And so, back to basics. You don't get much more basic than the gospel. The gospels. Four of them. What are the gospels? They're really a set of anecdotes. Jesus, is long, in addition to his teaching and to his miracles, in addition to going to the cross... He built a church. He left behind the apostles. And their early witness to him is what became the Gospels. They traveled with him. They stayed with him. They ate with him. They listened to him. They were taught by him. They watched him for three years. And the Gospels are a series of anecdotes, a series of stories. When people asked the apostles about Jesus, they started talking about him. And as the apostles got older, those um, things that were said, the public witnesses, some had been written down, some hadn't, they were collected together. And so when we look at the Gospels, we're looking at the closest eyewitness accounts of Jesus. He didn't write anything himself. He left it to his church and to his, his apostles. And of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the most direct the most uh, vivid of the witnesses. The Gospels themselves don't bear the name of who wrote them, but the Gospel of Mark, an early tradition, associates it with Peter, and it certainly bears the hallmarks of Peter. He was an illiterate fisherman. The Gospel of Mark is written in the simplest English in the Bible, uh, the, the simplest Greek in the Bible, And he doesn't write with any particular flair or style. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. If you gave that to a writing teacher, you'd get it sent back with a poor grade. But as an eyewitness account, he doesn't embellish. He doesn't try to interpret. He just tells you what he saw, what happened. So it's a great place to go. It's also almost certainly the earliest written account of Jesus. So it's a great place to go for the basics, and um, that's what we're going to do. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew form um, of anointed one. The Greek form is Christ. They mean the same thing, same word. It means the one who's been anointed, that is gifted, and sent from God. The one who has been promised in the Old Testament. And notice the beginning of the good news. The gospel. That's what uh, good news means in Greek. Good news is an eyewitness account of something that had happened. This was used of eyewitness accounts to battle, to wars, to conflicts. Before newspapers and radio and TV, if there was a victory, the soldiers would be sent out, dispatched, with the gospel, with the good news of the victory that had just been won. And so uh, Peter here uses that same word to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. This is a Messiah who has won a victory for us. He is good news to the world and to each of us. And so as we go through the gospel, as you read the gospel, you should be always asking the question, why is this good news for me? Where is the good news in this story, these events, for me personally, not just in general? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. He's talking about John the Baptist. But note, this is a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. If you you look at your Old Testament, it's the last book. It's a short book. And it was the last time that God spoke to his people, to Israel. There are 400 years between Malachi and and the Gospel of Mark. The people of Israel had experienced this terrible silence. The God that they had heard about growing up, the God that had created Israel, that had saved the people, the one who was supposed to dwell in the temple above the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory, well, that Shekinah glory had departed. And God had been silent. There had been no prophets. There had been no prophecy. There had been no word for 400 years. Can you imagine? Longer than America has been around. The people were hungry. The people were filled with doubts. The people were lost. And so Peter here is saying that silence is ended. But also the one who speaks is the one who spoke to you long ago. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Peter's quoting Isaiah here. And notice what he's saying. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. To Israel, that notion of wilderness would be a potent image. If you go to the Old Testament and you read the story of how God saved Israel, he took them out of slavery into the wilderness. He sustained them there. He spoke to them. He led them daily. By day, he was a pillar of fire. By night, he was a column of, um, sorry, fire at night, smoke during the day. He was there with them all the time. When Israel thought about God, they thought about the one who had taken care of them in the wilderness. And so when John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness, that would resonate with the people. That's why he was, they were so responsive to him. For the Jewish people, the desert meant a time of connection, a time of God's presence, a time of unconditional faith because God sustained them in the desert every single day. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of repentance. Repentance literally means turning around, turning back, changing course. When Israel hears this voice, when they hear from each other that God is speaking again, that he's out in the wilderness, they turn to him. Remember, they come, out in, uh, they come out of Jerusalem. They come out of their towns and villages. Their temples, their priesthood, their rituals, their holidays, everything was designed to center them on God. But it had become dry, dry. It had become route, root, route. I don't know how you say it in America. It had become mechanical. It had become just going through the rituals for the sake of rituals and only hearing silence. And so they want to turn away from that. It's died. It's dead. They want to turn back to the living God. They want to go to the God who guided them, who was present to them gave them an identity in the wilderness. You know, they were a rabble of slaves for centuries. Then God took them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them a law, and he made them into a nation and gave them a name, gave them a purpose, became the very center of their identity. He would direct them every day. If the column of smoke or the pillar of fire didn't move, they didn't move. When it moved, they moved. He provided water. Even in the most desolate places, if necessary, he provided water from the rocks. He gave them manna every day. And in the very center was the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments and the promise of God's provision. The good news, the gospel, begins long before Jesus. Jesus. The good news existed for Israel and the God who took care of them, who provided for them when they were lost, when they needed him, who gave them a purpose to be his holy people and to be his witness. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. What is the significance of that, do you suppose? He must have been quite a sight, living in the desert without shower, without soap and water, wearing just camel hair. What does that show? Why is that fact in the Bible? Why do we get this little vignette of John? Well, it shows that John didn't shop in the stores, in the towns, and in Jerusalem. He didn't get food there. John lived a life of radical faith. He lived only on what God provided him in the desert. His life was a witness to the fact that if you depend on God, he will take care of you. That he is the only thing that you need. That if you put your faith and your trust in him, even in the desert, he will provide But there's a problem, of course. Camel hair, I assume that that's an itchy and nasty thing to wear. I can't imagine, actually. I itch just from regular wool. Locusts and honey, definitely an acquired taste. Does this mean that if you put your faith in God, that you trust in him, you end up dressing like a and eating insects? Well, maybe. That's, after all, what it took for John. But look at Israel. When they were in the desert, God provided manna, which was meant to be delicious. Why did he do that? Deuteronomy tells us. God humbled Israel, causing them to hunger, and then feeding them with manna, which neither they nor their ancestors had known, to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God will do whatever it takes, good or less than good, to get your attention, to teach you to trust him, to teach you how to put your faith in him for provision. And he will always be there. That's the promise. Think of what these people were doing the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Why were they doing that? You know, these are not hippies. They're not party <clears throat> people who want to go out into the desert for a rave. This was a peasant culture. People lived hand to mouth. They were farmers, they were goat herds, they were fishermen, they were merchants. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. And yet they gave up the necessities of life to go out into the desert to hear John and be baptized. Why? Because ordinary life is not enough. They had lived through famines, through droughts, through storms, diseases, through wars, through oppression, Ordinary life they were familiar with. The struggle of ordinary life. The triumphs and challenges of ordinary life. Like we all are familiar with that. But it is not enough. They wanted to hear from their God again. They needed God's word back in their life. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Think about your own life, by the way. Not just food, but especially in America, we fill ourselves with so much stuff, so many movies, so much Netflix and Amazon, so many screens and social media. We fill our time and our energy with stuff. And does it make us happy? You can ask that of yourself. I know personally, By the way, I'm feeling virtuous this year. I got rid of my TV and Netflix and Amazon because it was just too compulsive. I realized it was just sucking up so much oxygen in my life that could be better spared for other things. And it's amazing how much free time it it spares. It it frees up. Mundane, day-to-day, ordinary life is not enough. And one day, of course, it ends. And they knew it, and we know it. And they were willing to do what it took to go and find the living God. So are there any lessons that we learn from this? Well, think about John. Some of you maybe will one day end up like him, but most of us won't. But what lesson does he give us? John lived day to day, trusting in God's faithfulness. He was out in the desert. It was just him and God in the desert. He had to learn radical faithfulness. Radical faith in God's faithfulness. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith. Faith is not something that we conjure up. If you're in a mountain and you're falling off And you reach out in desperation and need and you grab hold of a rope to save yourself. It doesn't matter how much faith you have in that rope, if it's not strong enough or if it's not tied, you'll still die. But if that rope is a faithful rope, if it is strong enough, its faithfulness will save you. All you need is enough need to reach out and grab it. Well, that's Christian faith. It is learning that God is faithful, that he does provide, that he is there, and he will take care of you. Your faith is not in yourself, or your knowledge, or your prayer life, or your worship life, or your knowledge of the Bible. Your faith and my faith is based on God's faithfulness and Christ's faithfulness. Are they faithful? Are they trustworthy? Do they come through when you need them? That's the essence of the relationship. By the way, I hope this doesn't come across as too self-serving, but you, know, you just heard some information about uh, our budget shortfall. This is unusual for our church. This hasn't happened in 13 years. Now, there are many reasons. I'm sure being downstairs didn't help us. But one thing it does show is that some of us have given up faith in this church. God said, the last thing he said actually to Israel before he left in Malachi, in addition to Peter's quote, was this. This is Malachi 3. Bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He's talking about his house, the temple. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. He's speaking, speaking to his people, speaking to Israel. And he is saying, if there's not provision in the storehouse, if the tithe is not coming in, you're not being faithful. And then he says, and this is the only place that he says it in the Bible, test me in this. Am I trustworthy? Test me. Test me by tithing and seeing what happens to you. See what happens to your finances. And by the way, when, when I first came across this, when I first became a Christian, it seemed a little ludicrous. You know, I wasn't in the habit of giving other people my money. Why would the God need money? He's got everything after all. But it really is a spiritual test. Do you believe him? Are you really able to put your faith and trust in God? By the way, you need to know this stuff. If he's not really there, if Christianity is not true, then you should not be wasting your time and your family's time and your children's time coming to church. There are plenty of self-help books out there. There are plenty of different movements and belief systems in the world. Try a different one. See if it works for you. It is a good thing to know as early as possible if God is faithful. If he is trustworthy. We better know that if we're going to trust him with our life and the lives of the, those that we love. So this is a great and straightforward and simple test of God's reality. God's reality. Test him by tithing. Tithing is uh, a full tithe is 10% of your salary. Try that for a month or three months or six months, whatever it is, and see what happens. You might free up a Sunday morning. You might be able to do something different. But if he responds, if something happens, that will be the basis of your faith in his faithfulness. And that's what leads to trust and intimacy. Think of John the Baptist. He was out there in the desert. He had learned to trust God. And what did God share with him? Knowledge about the coming Messiah. He became the prophet, the only one on the planet who knew what was about to happen. God had become intimate with him because of his faith And he had become intimate with God because he had learned to trust him and started to relax and started to be in relationship with him. And the result was he now knew things that nobody else knew. By the way, I learned this um, pretty early on as a preacher. Anybody can be a pastor. There's books about it. Preaching is hard. And when I started to preach, I was desperate. Desperate. You have to be desperate. And it forced me to pray. What does this mean, Lord? I do not understand what this is about. I have no idea what to say on Sunday. You know, Sundays come along every week. It's like a test paper. You stand up and you say what you found out. And you better have something to say. There's nothing more desperate than a preacher on a Saturday. If they haven't, look to the scripture if they don't know what they're going to say if the well is dry it forces you at least it forced me to learn to pray it demanded that i pray and hopefully if you've benefited from my sermons you know that every now and again god shows me something new gives me something fresh to say that's how it works learning to trust and he has always been faithful to me in this Learning to pray and relax into that trust and that faithfulness and through that relationship learning new things. Finding out what the Lord of the universe is up to. What he wants you, what he wants his church to be about. Think of John the Baptist. He had a clear sense of his purpose and how to serve God because he had spent so much time depending on him. The knowledge that there is somebody out there who's got your back will transform your life. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. The reality of Jesus the Messiah sent from God who cares about you and me, who has a plan for us and provision for us, who's got a purpose for your life. I remember the first time I heard about Jesus. I was back in England. I, was, I can't remember exactly how old, about 12 or 13, something like that. And we were assigned two books at our English class. One was uh, The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkinson. And the other was Run, Baby, Run by Nicky Cruz. And it was a sign reading, but I, I just loved it. Uh, it's a story about David Wilkinson and how he goes into the, uh, the gangs of Brooklyn and he brings the gospel to them. And ma- m- most of us, and many of the boys especially, love the violence of it loved the blood and the guts of it, and uh, this unimaginable place called Brooklyn and just how vicious it was. The most vicious one there, the most vicious gang member, the best fighter, was Nicky Cruz. And he was notorious when he entered a fight. He would pick up one of those mesh trash cans they used to have, and he would put it over his helmet, and he would have a bat or a chain, and he would lead the charge into the other people, slashing and clubbing anyone that got in his way. He was notorious. But then he met David Wilkerson. I, I was transformed by that book. There's a moment in the book where he becomes a Christian or thinks he's a Christian. He joins this new community that David Wilkerson began, which eventually became uh, Times Square Church. And he talks about the wonder of praying for things and things happening. They had no resources when they started this community. They were all outlaws, notorious. They'd only known the streets of Brooklyn growing up. They began to pray and God gave them a space to meet. And God gave them the materials they needed. And things would just show up at the door. People would show up with a check when they needed to pay rent or to buy something. And food when they didn't have anything. And the wonder that Nikki has as this begins to happen and he realizes this is real. God is real. He is listening to our prayers and he's taking care of us. It was the first inkling I ever had that there was something beyond this world. Now at the time, I didn't, I didn't run off and go and join a church, um, I still thought that this was just crazy Americans of Brooklyn doing crazy American things, but I remember thinking the wonder that Nikki had, I would love to experience that. I'd love to know that there was something bigger than me, something more powerful, somebody, something that would take care of me in the world. And it all comes down to trust. Have you experienced Jesus taking care of you? Have you been in need and he's come through? It's all about faith. Sometimes extraordinary things out in the wilderness. You know, go on our uh, family retreat in June and go and get lost and see what happens. It can be small, mundane incidents in your life, small elements that you turn over to God. God. It could be your finances. It could be relationships. Who knows? But you'll never learn faith. You'll never learn trust until your need is met by Christ. Let me end with this story. I read this uh, a few years ago in a sailing magazine. There was an old man, and uh, everyone knew him in town. He was a nice old man, but he had a quirk. Every day, he would go down to the seafront, and he'd feed the seagulls. But not just scraps. He would uh, give them serious food, expensive food, the best food that he had. You know, he didn't hurt anybody. He didn't bother anybody. This was just a harmless quirk. People didn't mind. He was just a character in town. But what most people didn't know, and actually the writer of the story a retired naval guy, he, uh, he investigated and found out. What most people didn't know about this old man was that he'd been a pilot in World War II. And his flight, he was the captain, his flight had got lost among the islands of the Pacific. They couldn't find their airfield, and they ran out of fuel, and they had to ditch in the ocean. And the Pacific is a big place, and they drifted for many days in this open raft. And they didn't have a problem with water. There were plenty of showers, and they filled the bottom of the raft. But they didn't have any food. And after several days, as the days turned into a week, they became desperate, boiled by the sun, no food. They began to starve. They began to get delirious. They began to lose hope. And so the pilot felt responsible for all this. But he said, at a certain point, He could not keep his eyes open. He thought he was going to die. And at that desperate moment, the last energy that he had, as he closed his eyes, he prayed. First time. Didn't believe in God, but he prayed. And asked God to help. He opened his eyes, and there, sitting on the side of the life raft, was a seagull. And he grabbed it. And they ravished the he and the other Ammon in the raft, ate it raw, alive. They were starving, every part of it. Day by day, these seagulls kept showing up, kept them all alive until they were rescued. So the war had happened a long time ago; everybody had forgotten, except that old man. And every day, he went down to feed the seagulls. And gave thanks that they had taken care of him. Well, not them. Do you think he was really saying thank you to the birds? He'd prayed for the first time, and God came through, and he never forgot it. That's faith. That's what putting your faith in God is all about. Trusting and knowing absolutely that He is faithful. That he is and will take care of you. That he's there. He seeks your best. And he wants you to thrive. And that's why Jesus is good news. He's the one that brings it. Let's pray together.